The Optimal Life. I love the title of your book because <laughs> I feel like so many of us really do think, man, am I really screwed up? Am I really effed up? Yeah. What, what, why is that? Why, why do we, why are we our toughest critics, doctor? You know, we learn it, Nate, at a very young age. We really do. Um, cause when we're born into this world, you know, if you look at little babies and young children, they're these bright, shiny little bundles of love and joy and play and fun. And, you know, they're not worried about the future. They're not dwelling on the past. They're just right here, right now. Right. But, um, as I write about in the book, as we get a little bit older, we start getting programmed. We get conditioned. We get a lot of messages coming in from all over, whether it's your family, your school, the, the kids in your neighborhood. And then now we have you know social media and TV and movies. And so we're constantly getting bombarded. And if you grew up in a religious tradition, you're going to have that as well. But we're getting these messages all the time about how we're supposed to act, what we're supposed to say. Um, how we're supposed to be. And most of us at that point learn the concept of judgment, right? We learn about right and wrong. And we start to come to believe that there's something wrong with us, especially if we're different in any kind of way. We learn that different is bad. I should try to fit in and be like everyone else. And, and so if I'm not like everyone else, there's something wrong with me. What have you seen from a, an effect when it comes to the adolescence mm. with social media? What What kind of impact has that? Because you're talking about being uh, having the being influenced by probably your parents or authoritative figures, of course, your friends to an extent. But when you're subject to all of that stuff within seconds at your fingertips and you talk about judgment, whether it's you judging others or whether you feel like, hey, I'm not as good as that. That girl's doing a TikTok dance. I wish I looked as good as her. <laughs> what what have you seen from a psychological standpoint when it comes to the connection between social media consumption and adolescent uh, mental health? It's it's not good, Nate. It really isn't. Um, you know, there's some really wonderful things about social media and being con being able to connect with people from all over the world in this kind of way. But unfortunately. I mean, just look at the social media challenges, these ridiculous challenges that are actually really dangerous and people are getting hurt. Um, so it, it does tend to have a toxic influence. Um, we know, for example, adolescent girls have had a massive increase in self-harm, things like cutting themselves because of what they're seeing on social media, because it almost has become trendy. Uh, there's a lot of people trying to self-diagnose themselves from, from teenage years on social media. How do I know if I have ADHD? How do I know if I have borderline personality disorder? And it's almost, as I've worked with kids more recently, I don't tend to focus on that in my practice, but I have, you know, in the last few years worked with some adolescents. And what I see is it's hip to be effed up. Like I have had this like bad stuff happen in my life. That makes me special. I have a diagnosis of some kind that makes me special. Look at my, you know, cuts and, and burns and things I've done to myself. It's really skewed our perspective. I think in a lot of ways and teens um, now are even less okay with themselves the way I'm, the way I'm seeing it. You know, they're really 
trying, like you said, to live up to that girl with the cute, you know, outfit, doing her little dance or like, wow, look at that girl's face. You know, she's so beautiful, but she's also been touched up and filtered and all the things you're not seeing people as they genuinely are typically on social media. You're seeing a persona, you know, they're putting out a mask they're putting out to the world and people think that's who they are and then they compare themselves to it. And yeah, really um, can end up in a really bad place psychologically when they do that. So you mentioned that people think it's hip almost to be screwed up. <laughs> so when a teenager comes to you and says, do I have borderline personality disorder? That's the example you used. Mm -hmm. how, how does somebody even understand, A, what that is, and B, if they truly do have signs that maybe they are suffering from that? You know, we need to not di be diagnosing ourselves. And I think that goes for medical conditions too, right? I have this weird rash. Now I'm on WebMD and now I'm thinking I have this horrible thing. I think you need to talk to a professional who's trained. Those are the people who are able to actually give you a diagnosis. Um, actually with borderline personality, with personality disorders in general, we don't typically diagnose those until a person is in their adulthood. So a teenager really shouldn't even be looking at that because they're still forming, their personality is still forming and they've got the surge of hormones and all these other things. They're emotional, they're reactive. Um, that might not be a pathology. That might just be adolescence. <laughs> right. Um, so, so I think, um, you know, as much as there's all this information out there and certainly you can look up the criteria of various mental disorders, really, you need to see a professional and have them, uh, talk with you and do a full assessment because they're trained in differentiating kind of what's what, um, what might be, you know, it's all on a spectrum, what might be within kind of the normal range of human behavior and what might be a little further down the spectrum that might be an indication that something's a little more off and needs attention. But uh, do you believe that it is, while it's it's probably premature to say, yes, I suffer from borderline or narcissism or bipolar, any of these cluster, what is it, the cluster B? Cluster B, <laughs> yes. Uh, personality disorders. Isn't it still probably, I would imagine it, it is at least responsible if the teenager, him or herself, feels like, hey, maybe I am portraying some of these signs and symptoms. Uh, I'm not going to diagnose myself, but if I want to make sure that by the time I'm 25 or 30 that I'm not full blown, this may be a good time at 16 or 17 to start mm -hmm. working on things so it doesn't get out of control. Is that fair to say? I would love if more teenagers had that mentality. <laughs> I think that would be I think that would be so great for preventative medicine, you know, because the other thing that I specialize in working with is addiction. And a lot of the seeds for addiction are getting planted at these very young, even younger than adolescents at this point. Um, so I think if people are are recognizing that, hey, something doesn't feel right to me, I would I love it if they would reach out for help. But the good news is that, you know, mental health treatment, getting counseling or even like getting a coach or something like that is much more, I think, okay in our society now than it was when I was a kid or maybe when you were a kid. Like I remember being a kid and and thinking, oh, if you have to go to the therapist, like there's something really wrong with you it was the head shrink. And it meant you were really effed up. I think in this day and age, again, with this sort of trendiness, like, you know, it's okay to have a therapist. It's a, it, it's not so socially stigmatized in the way that it's been in the past. So I think if more teenagers were recognizing those signs and asking for help, we would avoid a lot of the problems they get into down the road. Mm. 
Very interesting. Yes, I, I totally agree. And I would love to see more people raise their hand and ask for help in that manner, at least being proactive, not succumbing to the to the, the, the trauma that maybe they experienced when they were young kids and that they would continue to experience and then letting it spiral out of control into something else. Um, raising your hand and say, it's okay to ask for help. Yes. And you mentioned the word trauma. If I could riff on that for a minute, um, because I think this is another specialty of mine is working with trauma. And I think people in our culture don't fully understand the implications of trauma, especially early life, childhood trauma. Um, People, I think, think, you know, we'll just get over it. It's in the past. Move on. You can't go changing the past, whatever. But people don't fully understand that the effects of trauma are physically theological and not just psychological and people who have experienced these adverse experiences, it changes the way your brain functions and the way your brain develops. And people often will get stuck in that state of fight or flight or freeze. And that really does affect your ability to function in the world. If you're constantly like on guard, you know, worried that something bad is going to happen to you, if you don't feel safe in the world, you're not going to be able to function really well. And again, with addiction, that often tends, people tend to self-medicate, right? The pain of that unresolved trauma, you really do need to work through the trauma in some kind of way that includes the body in order to be able to heal from it. And too many people are walking around carrying their trauma with them and it's still impacting them in all kinds of ways. Do you believe that everybody that suffers from addiction in one way or another had some form of trauma? I do. Um, just because I've been working in this field for 25 or more years now, and I would estimate that probably up to 80%, you know, when they do the research, it could be 50, 60%, but I see, you know, much higher rates than that. Um, and, and of course, you know, I have a skewed population because I work in an addiction treatment program that serves women, uh, who have trauma. Um, But even prior to that, I think the majority of clients that I was seeing definitely had, not always, but usually had something really bad that happened to them um, that they experienced as a trauma. And then, you know, we have to be broad in our definition of that, too. Some people think trauma is the obvious things like being assaulted or abused or, you know, war or a natural disaster. But, you know, we have those little T traumas, big T traumas and little T traumas. Um, which nowadays we're using a slightly different languaging, like overt traumas and covert traumas. Well, those covert traumas can be being bullied at school day after day after day. It could be the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of your pet. All of those things can be experienced by someone as being very traumatic, overwhelming their ability to cope with it in that moment. Yeah, because I would uh, would think that somebody... Let's actually dig into the addiction and the trauma because they're intertwined. So uh, you mentioned traumas have a long spectrum. It's not just getting your abused or physically or sexually or emotionally abused. There's mm-hmm. a lot more to that. Yeah. But the addict, then you're saying the addict self-medicates. So th- when the self-medication continues to because all you're doing is you're going to intensify it because what may be self-medicating, what was maybe helping you at one point, you start becoming numb to that, right? So now you got to up the ante a little bit. So how do you, Adriana, come in and, and help these people kind of reverse this this addiction? 
Yeah, well, it's not a simple approach. I wish we could say, you know, and I think the there's a myth out there that, oh, you're going to go to rehab and in 30 days you're going to get cured. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, that's just the start. That's just getting you out of the insanity and, you know, getting your body off the drugs and, you know, planting some seeds and, and doing some work. But like the work goes long after that for people that really have full blown addictions that have taken a tremendous toll on them, on them and on their lives. Um, you have to look at treatment, whether it's for addiction, mental health or anything th through a holistic lens, through the physical, mental, emotional and spiritual components of that. So when you're looking at addiction, you have the physical dependence, right? Uh, maybe somebody um, needs medication to help stabilize, you know, their symptoms. Um, you're dealing with, uh, you know, they're probably nutritionally, if you've been drinking all the time and not eating, you're malnourished, your gut flora is going to be imbalanced. You know, you, you have to deal with all the physical stuff, obviously the mental, emotional, your belief systems, um, how you feel about yourself, um, how safe you feel in the world. But then spiritual is really important too. And I think that's underlooked in our field. Addiction is a spiritual disease. It is about disconnection is really, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about, a lot about this, you know, that when we're not feeling socially connected and part of, and our life doesn't have meaning and purpose, that's often that emptiness that so many addicts talk about, like this emptiness, this void I feel inside, and I'm drinking and using drugs, trying to fill it. Um, my good friend and colleague, TJ Woodward, talks about it like we're holding our umbilical cord in our hand, looking for a place to plug it in outside of ourselves, when really we need to plug that back into ourselves and get reconnected with our essence, with our authentic self, you know, like the little babies who were born into the world being joyful and happy. That's your spirit. That's your soul. And I think when we experience trauma, when we believe these bad things about ourselves, you know, we actually get disconnected from that part of ourselves. How, how so, do we reconnect? How do we reconnect that? Well, it's a process, right? Therapy is really helpful. Getting away from the toxics, you know, the, the toxins themselves, the drugs, letting your brain heal from, you know, your neurotransmitters have been thrown way out of whack. Support is really important. Most people in later stages of addiction tend to be really isolated. A lot of our clients talk about like, I was drinking alone in my room, just watching TV 24 seven with the curtains drawn, like getting connected, right? So this is why 12 step and other peer support groups, um, group therapy is really important. People understanding, hey, I'm not alone in my struggles. Other people understand what I've been through. And I can look at other people who have some sobriety, who have worked on themselves and I can see that they're happy. And when I hear their horror stories of how they were, you know, hit rock bottom, but now, you know, they're thriving and doing well, that inspires me to follow this path, because it's not an easy path. Recovery is not, this is why I think the relapse rates are so hard. It's not easy to get clean and sober and change your life and change how you see yourself and how you see the world. Peel back the layer for us a little bit on those group sessions. I assume that you've been involved in these, that you've witnessed them, that you've probably facilitated right. some of these group therapy sessions. Talk to us about the atmosphere, the energy, what are you seeing? What kind of reactions are these people that are coming through there that are trying to heal themselves and recover? Just give us a little more depth of, of what's really taking place in those sessions. Well, you have psychoeducational sessions and then you have more process kinds of 
groups, right? Psychoeducation, we're teaching them about, you know, addiction 101, trauma 101. What does it do to your brain? What does it do to your body? Like helping people understand um, that piece of it, helping people understand how your thoughts create feelings and then your feelings lead you to do behaviors, CBT, you know, DBT, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, teaching mindfulness. I do a lot of mindfulness. We do meditation at the beginning of each of my groups to give people a chance to check in with themselves because a lot of people are disconnected. They don't, they're not even in their bodies, right? Learning how to ground yourself, how to be in your body, how to feel what's going on. Like, recognizing hunger signs, recognizing thirst signs. When you're drugging and drinking all the time, you're you're overriding your body's natural signals. Teaching people halt, like hungry, angry, lonely, tired. These are relapse triggers, helping people to understand what makes me want to drink and use. And then a lot of times it's sharing stories, sharing pain, tears may come, um, recognizing ahas will come. Like, hey, you know, because kids think when they're young, and if bad things happen to them, they think it's their fault, right? It's my fault I got abused. It's my fault that my mom was never around for me. You don't understand when you're a kid that, well, maybe mom has her own issues. Maybe mom has mental health issues. Maybe she's not really equipped to be a mom. You start to learn that, oh, maybe I'm not as effed up as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not to blame for everything. Maybe it's not my job to make everyone else and everything happy because codependency kind of comes with addiction. Maybe I need to put myself first. We talk about, you know, on the airplane, the oxygen mask comes down. You're supposed to put it on you first and then on someone else. We have to teach our clients how to do that. We have to teach them how to have healthy boundaries. If you were abused as a child, the likelihood that you're going to choose an abusive partner, so many, you know, and again, I work with women primarily, but so many women are repeating these abusive relationships into their adulthood, teaching them um, how to recognize the signs of gaslighting, um, how to set boundaries with people and say no, um, how to well, honor. I'll talk about your... real quick. I'm sorry, Adrian. Yeah, go ahead. I could go on and on and on. <laughs> no, this is beautiful. Talk about the signs of gaslighting. What exactly what does that look like? Well, gaslighting is when someone is, um, you know, comes across initially as very charming and then over time and might love bomb you, you know, make you feel really good about yourself. And then slowly they start picking away at you and making you think that you're crazy. And it comes from the movie Gaslight, which was a movie in the 40s, a black and white woman movie with um, Ingrid Bergman. And this guy over time is like kind of tricking her and making her think she's crazy. Like, what are you talking about? That didn't happen. I didn't say that. And you're like, I know you said that. And no, you're crazy. I didn't say that. Or or making you think, isolating you from your friends and family and um, telling you things like, well, everyone thinks you're crazy or everyone thinks, you know, you're wrong. And slowly eroding away at someone's sense of self, um, their sense of like, what's true for me. Um, in the movie, he kept turning the gaslights up and down and he would, and she'd be like, what's happening with the gaslights? He's like, what are you talking about? I don't see anything, right? So like really eroding away at someone's um, sense of, of knowing, uh, which then of course you can then take advantage of them. So it's, that's often the times. There's a great article actually on psychology today that came out in 2016 called the 11 warning signs of gaslighting. I highly recommend people check that out. And that was psychology today. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Um, okay, so I interjected. So th there's gaslighting women creating the the they continue in the loop. They were abused as children. 
they obviously continue in that loop as adults and they continue to be abused because that's all they know. That's all that feels comfortable. And and it's hard to break the change. You did talk about the, the group setting, the group therapy. I would imagine that it is a whirlwind mix of emotions. You've got fear. You've got anxiety. You've got love. You've got joy. You've got hope. All of these things wrapped into these sessions. To me, that has to be when you see breakthroughs and people opening up and crying and letting their guards down and realizing, hey, I'm not the only crazy one. Like, look at all these other people. Maybe we're not crazy after all. Maybe this is this is this was our only choice to go this path. This we had no we had no other control over this. And now we're trying to do whatever we can to fix it. I would imagine, Adriana, that some of those breakthroughs have to be the most powerful moments that you've ever witnessed. Uh, for sure. And I think that's what keeps us all in this industry doing the work because the the miracle, as we call it, could happen at any given moment. You know, mm. it's the the big aha, the recognition that like, it's not all my fault. Um, I'm not as effed up as I think I am. Um, I'm not alone. Uh, I can heal from this. Like, yeah, ev- every time I see that with someone, it's, uh, it opens my heart. And it touches the hearts of everyone in the room. And then that has the ripple effect because when that person starts healing what feels broken within, their friends, their family start to change, right? It has an impact on them. And then that has an impact. Like this is how we change the world. It's one by one by doing the healing within ourselves. Then we're putting an energy out in the world, right? That changes some of this negativity and toxicity that's so rampant right now in the world. So that's on the emotional and mental side, but there's also the physical piece. And if we don't have our physical well-being and our physical health, I would also imagine you're not going to get to this optimal emotional and mental level because of the physical ailments. I think that goes back to your story where you were bit by a tick. Yes. And had no clue that these physical issues were because of that. And you were suffering, I believe, from Lyme disease. I was. Yeah. Back in my 20s after college, I was living in Colorado and, um, you know, was camping and doing, you know, a lot of outdoors things. And I remember after camping, I was sleeping outside one time and I found a tick on my back. Um, It wasn't I didn't think it was embedded. I just kind of flicked it off. There was no bullseye rash. There was, you know, none of that. And back then, this is, you know, back in the 90s, people didn't know that much still. Doctors were not, you know, I I started getting sick. I started becoming allergic to everything in my environment and I got really, really depressed. And I thought, well, I'm just depressed because I'm going through a breakup or, you know, whatever it is that was happening in my life at the time. I would go to doctors and they would tell me it was all in my head. Like we can't, your blood work, we can't tell anything is going on. What what were were the physical things that you were experiencing that you would say, hey, I'm complaining about a, B, and C, and they're telling you that this is all in your head. Exhaustion was a big piece of it. Um, I was physically exhausted all the times because I had chronic fatigue syndrome that was coming, you know, lots of other things come with Lyme disease as your body starts to break down. Um, I had I had the depression, I had a foggy brain, like I couldn't think straight. Um, I had anxiety. I had, um, uh, as it progressed, I had a lot of physical pain, um, especially my joints. I was getting injured a lot, spraining ankles and blowing out my knee and different things. Like my ligaments were not very um, resilient. I was getting um, really bad headaches. Um, the, the chemical sensitivity started. I started getting like more um, sensitive to different smells. And I got so allergic to everything. I had to give my cat away. 
I mean, it took 13 years for the doctors to give me a correct diagnosis. And in that time, I was really, really, really struggling. So and when you're struggling, again, back to my point, for those 13 years, you could have gone to all the group talk therapies, you could have gone to all the done all the mental and emotional work. But correct me if I'm wrong, there is there is no way that you would have felt good even through all that without getting diagnosed properly on the physical ailment side. Absolutely. You know, Nate, I had a woman I worked with in my private practice for a year. We were working with depression and I used every trick in the book, every technique I could think of. And we could barely, we couldn't move the needle on any of it. And finally I said to her, you know, can you just go to your doctor? I mean, she was a young woman, seemingly in good health. I said, can you just go to your doctor and get some blood work? Well, sure enough, everything was out of whack. Her thyroid was low. She was vitamin D3 deficient. People don't realize that not getting enough sunlight or if your body can't metabolize, you know, vitamin D well, then you're going to be depleted and it's going to look like depression. Um, So many different conditions. I had um, low blood sugar. I had hypoglycemia issues, you know, and that was, I became pre-diabetic. That was my, so my pancreas wasn't working right. My liver wasn't working right. Um, but with her, it was like, as soon as she got that blood work and then she got on supplements and medications to, you know, balance those things out, she was happy again. Like it wasn't a mental thing at all. It was purely physical. And when she addressed that, the symptoms of depression went away. What did you do to fix the the Lyme disease issue? Oh God, it was a long journey. Um, That's what got me on the path with holistic medicine. So really at that point, Western medicine had nothing for me, but we could give you tons of antibiotics, put you on a, put a pick line in you. And we'll turn you into a, we'll turn you into a zombie. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. So I wasn't having that. Um, So I started seeking, I had already been, um, I had done a year of massage school. Um, I think I intuitively knew I needed to explore body and the bodies in the physical when I was living in Colorado. Uh, so I had gotten introduced to chiropractic that went into acupuncture. And from there, it was a lot of energy medicine, um, homeopathics, herbs, um, and doing these healing modalities that I now practice where we were looking at unresolved trauma. Um, Dr. Klinghart, Dieter Klinghart is an expert in Lyme disease and other kinds of autoimmune conditions. And I remember reading an article by him way back in the probably 2000, early 2000s that said, what I see in my patients with Lyme and other conditions is that, is that they have unresolved trauma that's affecting the way their body is functioning. And if they don't address that, they will not heal. So I started doing really deep work using energy psychology, um, using NET, neuroemotional technique, all these different things that were addressing the ways in which I had stored all this trauma from my own life in my body and how that was impeding my body from being able to heal. Mm. So the energy psychology was a big factor in your recovery. Yes, huge. Talk talk briefly about what exactly, because you have on your website, you have several different subcategories. Talk to us about energy psychology. What is it? Well, so it's really bringing in traditional healing modalities from Eastern cultures, like principles of acupuncture, or if you're working with uh, Indian medicine, Ayurveda, the chakras, right? But and in traditional Chinese medicine, they talk about how we have these different energy pathways in our bodies called meridians. This has been validated by Harvard Medical School, did a 10-year study on this. So we now know the science is actually there to support this. But we have these different pathways that go through our body, and we have specific points that are more electrically charged. And when you stimulate those points... 
um, what the Chinese would say is you're you're balancing, rebalancing the energy flows in the body. And that when you do that, the body is able to heal itself. If you went to a Chinese medicine doctor and said, I have depression, I have anxiety, have trauma, they would not talk to you about your problems. They'd be looking at how is the energy flowing in your body and where is it imbalanced or blocked? And they might put needles in those places to help restore the flow. Well, now Western medicine has come in and looked at this and found that actually what is happening, what we now see in the brain when we look at brain scans and stuff is when you're stimulating those acupuncture points, you're sending an electrical signal up to the amygdala which is the emotional center of your brain that activates the fight, flight, freeze response. And it sends a calming signal. So you'll, your stress hormones like adrenaline, cortisol, they come down, your feel-good chemicals kick in, your serotonin, GABA, your endorphins, endogenous opiates, your brain waves slow down, your brain starts communicating better. And essentially it's a mind-body technique that calms the stress response, which then allows you to do psychological work like talk therapy or allows your body to heal when it's in a constant state. I mean, your body will burn out. My adrenals were fried from being in this constant state of fight or flight from my early life experiences mm. and my yep. intergenerational trauma, which is a whole nother story. My parents were children in World War II in a what be later became a communist country um, and so from a young age, they went through trauma and that impacted me because we now know through epigenetics that impacts the way your genes function. So I inherited all this trauma as well that I was, you know, was living in my body. What's your greatest professional accomplishment to date? No, oh, that's a tough question. I think it happens every day in, in the work that I do, you know, and in those miracles that happen. But I would say the book was a pretty big accomplishment. Um, I wrote a book that came out last year, What If You're Not As Effed Up As You Think You Are. And um, boy, that was even harder than writing a dissertation, <laughs> trying to like take my life's work and all these like, you know, tools and techniques that I've learned and try to like distill it down into like simple strategies that people can use to start to change and re-sculpt the way they think, the way they feel, um, giving information about how you can rewire your brain with these techniques, talking about trauma and how it impacts you on all these levels. I think that was a huge accomplishment for me um, to get that work out beyond the therapy room in these closed doors, you know, where the miracles happen and try to get it out into the world so more people can know that this is available. What if you're not as effed up as you think? We've linked that in the show notes. Who should be reading this? I mean, it does it's, it does it have to be somebody who feels completely depressed and effed up, or is it a bigger audience than that? I think it's. I mean, I think it's a bigger audience than that. Though certainly, any of my clientele <laughs> um, and the people who have read it have really loved it. I think it's also for fellow professionals. Actually, um, part of my target, and even in like I have my own podcast. Um, called Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health, where I explore some of these holistic modalities. I feel like a, at this stage of my career, um, a big part of it is getting out, like outreach and information, getting the info out there and like getting more of my fellow professionals to recognize, hey, talking alone is not enough to really help people heal. There's this myriad of wonderful techniques out there that are more somatic, more holistic, that you can use with your clients to get better results. So I do think part of the audience is fellow healing professionals. I think it's anybody who's a seeker. Honestly, I'm a lifelong seeker. Seems like you might be a seeker type as well. Like I'm always looking for like 
you know, my degrees in transpersonal psychology, which is all about the highest reaches of human potential. How can we like be at our best? Yes. How, what, what are the infinite possibilities available to us when we no longer hate ourselves and are beating ourselves up? up all the time because i've seen those miracles happen i've experienced a miracle and i want other people to know that this is available to them also one of my biggest fears is looking back on life going i didn't tap fully into my potential yeah i know a lot of people feel that way and And i think a lot of people leave you know in their final days leave their life feeling that way yes i think most people probably do i bet you if you ask people on their deathbed what's your biggest regret it's i didn't I didn't, I wasn't everything I could have been. Yeah. And yeah. and that's really the driving force behind my podcast is talking to people like you so that I can optimize and take a little nugget. It, it doesn't have to be anything. I don't have to memorize the 35 minutes that we've spoken, but if I have 35 seconds of something that you said that sticks with me and I can employ that in my everyday life, yeah. Hey, we keep, we keep leveling up. Yep. Uh, Adriana, how do I say your last name? Popescu? Popescu. Very good. Yes. Look at that. Um, we've linked your website in the show notes, anywhere else you want people to find you online, social, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I have two websites, adrianapopescu.org. And then I also have a trauma healing uh, group practice called firebird healing. So firebird-healing.com and people can get, and I'm on all the social and YouTube and SoundCloud. I have a lot of information out there. I do a lot of Facebook lives and free educational zooms and different things like that. So people can sign up for my newsletter and they can get access to all that stuff. Awesome. Final question for you. Um, Whoever's listening right now, they're sitting there going, Oh, you know, I I feel kind of fucked up. I'm not, you know, I'm having a rough time. It's been a long few years. Maybe it's been a long decade. Maybe they're having physical ailments. Maybe it's not just the emotional, whatever it is. And they're feeling bad about themselves. They're feeling in a rut. They're feeling sad. Do you have an overall message for those folks to give them some sort of hope? Yeah, you can change the way you think and feel. It's not permanent. Um, Everything is energy, right? Our thoughts, our emotions, our physical sensations, all energy. And if you remember from your high school chemistry classes, whatever, energy is always in motion. It means it's malleable and we can change it. And maybe up until now, we haven't had the tools to do that, but those tools are out there now. So we can change the way we think, feel, and experience our bodies. And um, and we can be happy and fulfilled and satisfied with ourselves and our lives. It just might take some work to get there. Beautiful stuff. Hey, uh, doctor, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.